from New York City. A podcast from working actors, directors, and playwrights. This is the Cry Havoc Company. Hello, this is Jennifer Reichert, producer of the Cry Havoc podcast. Over the next three episodes, we will take you inside one of Cry Havoc's classes for professional actors. In this first class of a recent session of Cry Havoc's scene study course, The Performance Only You Can Give, artistic director Kit Lavoie presents an overview of the philosophy and technique that inform all of Cry Havoc's acting work and our acting classes. This enhanced episode includes images that were shared as part of the presentation during the class. You will know there is an accompanying visual element when you hear this tone. And now, please enjoy the first part of the performance only you can give. Hi, everybody. Hello. <laughs> um, welcome to our first session of this summer's session. Nope, our first class of this summer's session of uh, the performance that only you can give. So, uh, just to start us off, I think. Um, I mean, today, what today is largely going to be about, before we start ourselves off, is to really kind of give an overview to the approach that we're going to be taking in this class over the next eight weeks. Uh, the way that we want to be thinking about the scenes that we're going to be tackling, why we're going to be tackling them the way that we're going to be tackling them, and, uh, you know, hopefully what you're going to, you know, walk away with in your toolbox at the end of it. So, uh, just to start off, we ought to introduce ourselves to each other, and uh, I'm Kit. I will be teaching this class. I'm the artistic director of the Cry Havoc Company. I'm a playwright and director former actor, do sometimes still, but mostly direct and write these days. This actually we should introduce, this is Jenny Curlin. She is the uh, Associate Artistic Director of Cry Havoc, and uh, she is, is here to, um, and it, 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 to represent this actually something you're going to see throughout the time, and from time to time we're going to have other members of the company come by and be part of the session. It's, I think, one of the neat things about uh, the class, the classes that we do is a little bit of team teaching going on. I will always be with you, but uh, every once in a while I will have somebody else to come around and, and be with us. So. so, this is a class called The Performance Only You Can Give, for reasons that we will discover over the course of today and then over the course of the next six weeks, eight weeks, sorry. Yes, a whole bunch of weeks. <laughs> um, but... One of the things that's a really fundamental, really kind of cornerstone of the way that Cry Havoc thinks about things, and I also think, frankly, something that's just very true, um, is that the thing that, as an actor, the thing that is of the most value to you is the thing that makes you different than every, than every other actor, for several reasons, which is, one, that when you're talking about building a career, you're going to build your career on the thing that makes you unique. You're going to build your career on the thing that makes you different than any other actor because there are tens of, there are hundreds of thousands of actors in New York City uh, who are all competing for the same jobs. And the jobs do not go to the best actor, quote unquote. What they go for is the best actor who is the most right for this part. And being the most right for this part, um, you know, is the thing that is... Um, is going to be judged by the things that make you unique, the things that make you uh, unlike everybody else who's going in for, for the work. You have a product that you have to sell, and the more that you can, um, 
really isolate out what is your, as they say in the marketing business, your unique selling position. What is the thing that you have out in the market to sell that's different from everybody else in the market? That's going to allow you to pick better audition materials, pick better headshots, know what your website should look like, have a clear sense of where you want to be auditioning. Um, you know, because you want to be out there auditioning at places that are looking to buy what you have to sell. Now, that's sort of on the business end of things. Um, and that's underlying a lot of the, the work that we're doing. I, my great hope is that by the end of this course, in addition to sort of the artistic work we're going to be doing, that the kind of work we're going to be doing um, will sort of help you guys clarify what it is that your product is, what it is that you have to bring to the table that other people uh, don't have. It's something that we can be discussing over the course of the class, even though it's not... Um, really the focus of this class. We actually do have classes that are much more about, you know, structuring your product and, and things like that. But really importantly, there's also the artistic side of it, which is what we're going to be focusing on, which is that idea that there are things in your life, there are things in your emotional and intellectual and moral makeup that allows you to connect to roles in ways that no one else can. And always your most powerful, your most connected, your most complex, your most textured performance is going to come at those times when you are working from that place that is most tied into the thing that makes you you and makes you different than anybody else. And so what we're going to be working on is approaches and techniques, and we're going to talk about it today, and then the rest of the time we're going to be up and trying them, um, that really allows you um, to engage that part of yourself that is the most you um, in every single role that you play. Um, with that idea that, you know, you can say, I've seen, I've seen Olivier's Hamlet and I've seen Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet and I've seen Ray Fiennes' Hamlet. And that that's a meaningful statement. That Kenneth Branagh's, it's the same lines, it's the same play, but Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet is a different thing than Olivier's Hamlet. And that Jordan's Hamlet should also be a meaningful statement. And, you know, that that idea that any role that you play should be your take on that role. Because that's, what, that's why people are coming to live theater, is they're coming to see the way that these actors are intersecting with the ideas that this writer wrote rather than we're going to watch people report on the ideas that the writer wrote. That's the thrill of live theater, is to see what happens when this role really, again, intersects with the things that make you, again, different than anybody else. And so what a lot of the things that we're going to be working on over the, past, uh, over the next few uh, weeks is going to be all about finding ways to force you to, put your, to lay traps for yourself in ways that force the most essential parts of you to engage in whatever scene you're playing. Rather than, we'll talk more about this, rather than trying to figure out what the essential part of the role is and seeing if you can fake it. There are the things that are the most essential parts of the role that are there in the writing. They will be there no matter what you do. And the trick of it is, if you find the ways to be the most truthful about those things in the way that you understand the, the world, 
you actually are going to be serving the things that are in the writing even when you're not trying to play the writing. We'll get more into that. So um, that's the broad concept of, of, of why this is the performance that only you can give. Um, because you want to build your career, because you're going to build your career out of that. If you have a career, it is going to be because that thing that you have that makes you different is something that people find interesting. Um, and also, your best work is going to come out of when you're really driving that place. And it's just that example of, if you think, I mean, Hamlet's always a go-to example, but if you heard that... Um, uh, who George are actors? Clooney. George Clooney was playing Hamlet. I mean, you'd have a pretty good idea of what that would look like. If you heard that Matt Damon was playing Hamlet, you'd have a pretty good idea of what that would look like. If you heard that Peter Dinklage was playing Hamlet, you'd have a pretty good idea of what that would look like. They would all be very worthwhile, but they probably would be about 80% what you imagine them to be because those people have built careers out of the things that make them special and unique. And, I mean, George Clooney actually this is a whole separate conversation, but is, is I think, kind of like the, the world's best example of that, just in terms of he doesn't do an awful lot very well, but the thing he does very well, he does very well, and he is so shrewd about picking projects that are served by that thing that he does very well. I've very rarely seen him do too many different things, but very rarely have I seen a movie that he's in that one, I didn't enjoy the movie, and two, I didn't enjoy him in it. And it's because he really understands what he does very well. Um, that's a whole separate thing. So, in terms of um, the things that we're going to be uh, doing in the class, in the syllabus, is... Um, the areas that we're going to want to be digging into is one, uncovering the deep background of a character. That's something that we're going to be talking about more today, going to be working on as, as we move forward. But that idea of what are the things that we don't know about a character from the text that can be things that can, be, that can actually provide the engine for your performance. We'll get more into that. Asking the right questions to find the most playable choices. And that's a lot about a, an approach to script analysis that, again, I'm going to get into um, today. And, um, and the important thing is, again, that we're always going to be looking for what is going to make the role as engageable for you as possible, rather than what can I find in the text that tells me what I'm supposed to be acting like. We're going to be looking for what is the thing in the text that makes it feel so important to me to get up and fight for what this character needs. And we'll, we'll find that. Um, to be thoughtful about a scene without over-intellectualizing. And that's actually something a lot of the, the techniques that we're going to be jumping into um, in this process um, actually, I, I think, really serves people who, frankly, I'm one of them, who tends to get caught up in their head when they're acting. And a lot of what we're going to be working on is finding ways not to ignore your head, but to put the intellectualization, put the thinking part of you in the right part of the process that, again, will set traps for you that forces your um, visceral self to show up to play the game. I think that idea, and it was something that will come up before, but that idea of figuring out how to set traps for yourself so that you will have no choice but to engage. Um, 
and that's something again too. To set specific goals to get the most value out of a rehearsal, that's something we're definitely going to talk about more about today, about goal-oriented rehearsing, what that means, and the way that it really can make every single rehearsal you have five times more efficient than every rehearsal you've ever had before. I promise we'll talk about it. Um, setting up specific, dynamic, uh, uh, powerful, and enlightening improvisations. We're going to get into that uh, as, as we move forward, but the way to set up an improvisation that, again, is another version of setting a trap for yourself that's going to force the most interesting part of you into the game. Um, critiquing a scene, because that actually is a very important part, uh, I think, of uh, being able to... Uh, you know, of learning about yourself to be able to watch other people work and to be able to talk thoughtfully about what's making it work the way that it's working. Which I think is tricky because that's a different thing than being able to say what's making it good or bad. But what is it that this person is working on that is making it play the way that it is playing? Because if you can see that work in other people, it can help you to identify what you're doing in your work that's making the scene come out the way that the scene is coming out. One of the things also that we're definitely are going to get into, you'll hear me say a million, billion times, and I think is absolutely true, is there is no right way to do a scene. That's so much, I think, of what we're going to be working on, is freeing yourself of the idea that my job as an actor is to figure out what the scene is supposed to be and figure out a way to do it. Your job as an actor is to elevate the scene. Your job as an actor is to take the thing that the writer has written and make it more complex and more compelling when it's on stage in your body than when it was typewritten on the page. Um, and that's what we're going to be digging into. And knowing yourself as an actor. A big part of what we're going to be checking in throughout this time and hopefully some of the tools that you're going to uh, be able to take with you um, after we're done here, um, you know, are things that can help you learn yourself uh, as an actor. And there's a term that I've always rejected, and although I've, 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 <laughs> I've embraced it more over time because of some ways that I've found it useful, which is that idea of your instrument. But there really is something, though, that I think is important. If you are going to be a theater professional, if you're going to be an actor, if you're going to be an artist, if you're going to be a craftsperson, you have to learn your instrument in the same way that a you know, someone who plays the trumpet needs to understand what valves do they need to push to make certain sounds come out. Um, you need to understand what buttons in yourself you need to push to get to the places that you need to get going. And they're going to be different. They're going to be different places in you that's going to get you to melancholy, if that's what a director is asking for from you. But that idea of really being able to figure out what is it that moves me towards melancholy, towards rage, towards any number of different things that you might be asked to do by a director. Because the trick is you can't play melancholy, you can't play rage, you can yell, but who gives a shit, really? And also, frankly, the fact that rage looks very different on different people. I know people who, when they get angry, they get up, they pace around the room, they scream. Jenny will tell you, because she and I have been in a lot of meetings together over the years, when I get really angry, I get really quiet. And I call people by their name. But I've seen Jenny go, oh, as I'm sitting going, um, well, Kelsey, I'm just thinking, Kelsey, that I don't think you should have said that to me, Kelsey. And Jenny's like, oh, fuck, we're in trouble now. But that's how rage comes out of me. 
And that's how, and it's more of a thing that from a director's point of view, you know, what, what a, you hope, hopefully a director is going to ask if they want it to be about rage is, I want to see what rage looks like on you rather than I want you screaming because that's what I think rage looks like. That said, if the director says, I need you to be rageful, you need to scream more. Okay, what he wants is screaming, but you know when I'm in a rage, I don't scream. But what I do scream is when I'm doing this. You know, when, when, and so that idea of being able to understand what your instrument is, what buttons you need to push in order to get to the places that you might be called upon to get to in an organic way. Um, and also, I think, and it goes back to the performance only you can give, the idea of the instrument um, that, that everyone is their own instrument. And if you're a piccolo and you're a saxophone, you can both play the same song. It will be recognizable as the same song, but it will sound different on the piccolo than it will on the saxophone. And that idea that, you know, Hamlet should sound different out of the two of you guys. There isn't, uh, there's the song, but the song is going to be affected by the instrument that it goes through, which is why that, that, that term that I rejected for a very, very long time, I've actually come to embrace, although I'm always embarrassed when I say it out loud. Um, the, uh, uh, on, on the back, you'll see it's um, laid out. One of the things that we're going to do at the beginning of each class is we're going to do about a half hour of sort of discussion about some topic um, that we will then... Uh, put a special focus on in our discussions of the scenes that we work on that day. Um, and here it sort of lays out what they are. We're going to be working on two scenes over the course of the eight weeks. Um, one of them, the first one, and we'll talk more about this before we leave today, uh, one of them is going to be self-selected. We're going to ask you guys to just pair up, pick a scene. Um, we'll talk before we finish today about what we want in a scene to work on. Um, uh, I think largely something that would be a helpful pairing up is based on schedule so that you guys can rehearse in between classes. I mean, I, I think that's probably for the first scene, which we'll work on for the first three weeks, uh, is going to be more uh, the most important thing. And then the second scene is something that after I've gotten to get to know you guys a little bit is something I'll pair you guys up and assign you guys a scene that will be something that will, I think, be a very useful challenge to you guys based on what it is that you, uh, you, know, who it, you know, who it is that you are as an actor and what it is that you're trying, that you're working your way through at this point in your development as an actor because everyone always, hopefully, is working their way through things to work to become better at what they do, always. Um, so that's going to be um, that, uh, that goal. Uh, we're going to, uh, everyone, all of the pairs, we uh, should plan to rehearse uh, for at least two one-hour rehearsals a week in between um, rehearsals. Um, and just to say that that's one hour of rehearsing, not 25 minutes of seeing how you're doing and then 20 minutes of rehearsing and then 10 minutes of packing up. <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, that's... But, but I think given the kind of work that we're going to be doing, there's something about the repetition of the scene, and as we'll get into it today, that idea of being able to try your scene 50 times before we're done working on it, and which is one of the things why I would really recommend short scenes. Like, you know, it's one of those things you say, a five-minute scene, and it's like, okay, but a 10-minute scene. You're going to get a lot more, I promise, out of picking five minutes of a scene that you know, gets you really excited and be able to run it twice as much in one rehearsal for specifically the way that we're going to work 
rather than a ten minute scene that um, you, yeah that that you get to rehearse half as much is essentially um, what that comes to so th that's basically what we're going to be doing if you're not going to be in class uh, let me and let your scene partner know as early as possible so we can make plans um, so, you know, we're going to get a, a bunch of, of, of runs in at this. The first scene largely is going to be about um, digging into tools, which we're going to get into, um, for really finding the ways that you connect to a scene. That's really, we're just going to be trying many, many, many different approaches to a scene to find the things that really affect you about the scene. When we work in the second scene and have some of that practice under our belt, we'll be doing the similar thing, but also then be working on how do we bring these things together uh, that we find really affect us about a scene, really move us about a scene, really make the scene immediate and accessible to us, and bring it together into something that's, that's getting into a performance. Um, so for the first time, I mean, this is, I know a lot of scene study classes are about you know, we're going to direct this scene. It's going to be the perfect version of this scene. The, we're, we're not shooting for the perfect version of anything. We're looking to find out what's exciting about this scene in the body of the specific actors who are doing it. And especially the first time through, we'll be like, that's so exciting! Good, let's find other exciting things. Second scene we do, we'll do more of, that's so exciting! Let's remember that, and we'll talk in two weeks about how to pull it in with the other stuff that we learn about it in the next two weeks. You know, so... Um, that's kind of going to be the goal. So are there any questions about any of that stuff in terms of like how we're going to be working and that sort of thing? All right. Um, so let's talk about the actual work instead of talking about the schedule and things like that. Um, something that I have um, encountered in virtually every acting class that I've taken, every... Uh, uh, um, sorry, I actually was just thinking, I remember the first teacher who said this to me was actually a, um, she was uh, James Gandolfini's acting coach in The Sopranos, so I've actually been thinking about her all day because, it was actually funny because when I had her for class, she was, uh, uh, it was when they were filming the first season of Sopranos, and you know, and she's like, well, he's working on this show, and you know, the scripts are really good, and it's just hard to tell that they cut it together if it's going to be any good. <laughs> it was the soprano. So it was good. It was good. But, um, but anyway, you know, virtually every acting class that I've ever taken, you know, what people have been talking about is that, it, is that a class is about the tools, build, putting tools in your toolbox, which this certainly is. You put tools in your toolbox. You're doing Meisner work. You're doing mask work. You're doing sense memory work. You're doing on and on and on, any number of different kinds of work, with the idea being that there are ways to get inside of a scene. And almost every teacher that I've heard talk about that has said, but every once in a while you will encounter a scene that just serves itself up to you. Like you just get it. In which case, get out of its way. You know, but these are tools to do for the many, many, many more times that that, that, that doesn't happen for you. And Sometimes, I think a lot of times the actors will go like, oh yeah, that's like almost every role for me. In which case my thought is, prob this probably hasn't been any role yet, is my guess. Um, because I think that's something that happens three or four times in an actor's career, that they just read a role and it's just like, it's there, I have that. 
But a lot of the tools that we're going to be working on here are really about finding ways that you can turn any role into one of those roles. Because really that's what we're talking about is the personalization of things, to find the ways to bring the things that when you read this text in the, one of those three or four times in your career where you're going, where you say, oh my God, I totally understand this person because it hits everything that is most important to me. What this approach that we're going to be working on over the next six weeks is finding the ways that you can take the things that are so important to you and make you understand that character and bring them into the work you do on every character that you play. How to make every character something that is immediate and accessible to you. Part of that is going to be about script analysis. In fact, a lot of what we're going to be doing is going to be about script analysis, but in a very different way probably than you think about script analysis, which is um, that it's not about sitting down with the pencil and the script. It's actually about script analysis on your feet in very many ways. Um, but I think one of the major, because um, I actually, to be very candidly, have a real issue with a lot of traditional script analysis in this way, which is I think that there's a fallacy that I think a lot of script analysis really is great um, academic script analysis, literary script analysis, which is very rarely something that is helpful to an actor. It's very rarely helpful to an actor to look at a script and say, oh, I understand what the playwright's intent is, and then to try to play what you think that intent is supposed to be. Um, and something I also will throw out there, because I am, am a playwright, and I actually have been in a number of situations where I have been in the room of a play that I, was, um, that I had written, where the actors did not know that I had written it, and I have, there were three occasions on which I have had exactly the same conversation with an actor, where I have said, well, why don't you try this and see how that works? And they've said, no, I'm looking at the script, and the playwright clearly wants me to X, Y, and Z. And it's like, well, A, that's not working, so let's try something else, but B, I can tell you I was the playwright, and that's not what I was thinking. <laughs> So, you know, that idea even that if you could figure out what the playwright, you know, even if, even if you think the goal is to figure out what the playwright's trying to say, you can't always figure out what the playwright's trying to say. So what you want to do is find in what the playwright wrote, the thing that makes the works, the scene sing to you, what makes the character important to you. And then what you will do again is you will elevate it rather than reporting on it. You will bring something of yourself to this role that will make it thrilling. As in, I'm a playwright. I don't want to go to a production and see someone do it like I did, like I saw it in my head. I want to go and see someone do it better than I saw it in my head because my thinking about the play is intersecting with the thing that makes them essentially human and this character that I wrote on a page is a person standing there up there on the stage. You can't write three dimensions on a page in, in active movement real time. You can't do it. It's impossible. You leave a lot of clues about possibilities in a script of what this moment can be. But the body of an actor filling it out with everything that's true and important about the way that they understand the world, that's what's thrilling to watch, even and especially when you're the one who wrote that play. So that idea of that script analysis, I think effective script analysis for an actor, is not, is, is, I think a lot of times script analysis 
is about, let's look and see what we know from the script. Good. Now, that's an important part of it. That's a very important part of it, is to be able to look at a script and say, okay, what do we know from the script? What do we know from the script? Um, but much, 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 much more important is, frankly, that is very important. But to be able to then look and say, what don't we know? What don't we know from this text? Because you as the actor can fill that void with whatever you need to be true to make the character a character that you believe in, to make the character into a character that presents itself on the page because the way that you understand the world, the way that you understand who this person is, is something that moves you and that you feel the need to get up and fight for. You can fill in that information. And it's the idea of, you know, not what am I supposed to be doing when you look at the script, but to be able to fill in those gaps so it's the idea of who is this character that makes it necessary for me to stand up and fight for them. And that's what you want to look for in, in a text. And a big part of it is about really looking for a personal, textured, it's the thing actually we say in the, in the description of this class, the, the, the personal, textured, and deeply accessible performance. And that's accessible in two different ways, which is finding the way that you can understand a character that makes them accessible to you as an actor, that makes it so that I'm not playing a person I don't understand, but to be able to say, I totally understand. I more than understand what this person is about. Finding the way to turn every character that you play into someone who you can really identify with the thing that they are trying to do. And by extension, it's the idea of it is also then will be an accessible character to the audience because it will be a recognizably human character. Even a terribly written character can be movingly and deeply human if the actor engages that character on a human level. Um, and, you know, that's a lot of the work that we're going to want to be doing. And it's that idea that when you do that, that time that you're able to find the thing that engages exactly with, where you, with, with, with you and where you live and what matters to you and what you think is important about the world, and that thing that when you have the opportunity to stand up for your character, instead of being there to pretend to be someone else, that you're up there fighting for a worldview that you think is important, that is when a transcendent performance will happen. You can do a good performance by trying to figure out what you're supposed to be doing and getting up there and faking it. Maybe. But why would you want to settle for that? Why would you want to settle for that when you can do... Because if you think about the performances that you really admire, the film, the stage performances that you really admire, are there any of them any of them that you walked out of it going, oh, wow, he did everything that was expected of him by that role. <laughs> oh, seriously, he just, every single thing that was laid out, he just did it like it was supposed to be done. No, when you walk out of a performance, you walk out saying, oh, my God, I never would have thought to do any of that that way. And yet... Seeing that person do it that way, I can't imagine what would be better than that. 
I can't imagine what would be more thrilling than that. And that's the kind that's what all of your favorite performances, I will guarantee you, you look back at it. And that's, I mean, it's, it's the, my, one of the great moments of cinema, cinema history is in, uh, on, the, on the waterfront when uh, Brando's in the back of the car and what's his name? Charlie, his brother, um, pulls the gun on him. And the line is, no, Charlie. And it's written in the script, if you look at it, it's no exclamation point, Charlie exclamation point. And I can't actually do it. You, you watch it, but I mean, it's it's, it's that that the, his reader as he pulls the gun says, "No, Charlie." It's about his disappointment in his brother at that moment that that's what he would choose to do in a line that was written, "No, Charlie." But how much better is it? And you know that Brando came by that honestly. But that's the kind that's the kind of transcendent moment because you know what he didn't. It was still the moment it needed to be, but better. And that's what we're looking for. That's what we're looking for in all the work we're going to do in here. Um, again, this is, a, a, I think, really a, a way, a lot of what we're going to be working on by thinking about things this way, and again, we're going to get deeper into it, is it's a way for those of you who over-intellectualize things to put the intellectualization in the right place. Not to not be intellectual about your character, but to essentially, in a lot of ways, we're going to be dealing with is sort of have a little bit of a scientific method of exploration of your role. And to be able to use your smarts to figure out what angle do I need to explore this from. But then, once you've set that up for yourself, that it becomes incumbent upon you, if you've asked the right question, if you've set up the right thing, to let yourself go and find out what happens, because that's the experiment you're running. That's the experiment you're running. And then to re-engage intellectually on the other side and say, all right, what did I learn? What did I learn from that experiment that I ran? Um, and also so much of what this, tech, this approach we're going to be working on, on is about is that idea of rather than trying to get into the head of your character, really trying to get the character into your head that you all have had 20, 25, 30, however long it is, years of experience in your life that makes you a fascinating creature. Much more fascinating than anything that you could ever pretend to be. Now this is not at all to say, at all, that what we're talking about is that, you know, Everyone in Jenny's character is just Jenny, like she is in her real life. But that idea of, well, that's what you do with your parents all the time. I'm like, Jenny, what are you having for dinner? Oh, I'm having a sandwich. Um, but that idea that every character that Jenny plays drives in some way from the things that Jenny understands the best about the world. The things that Jenny understands about the world so well that she doesn't even understand it up here. Because that's part of the trick is the things that really matter most to you is stuff that you haven't totally processed. And a lot of this is about that idea of, of putting yourself in a situation where you're putting that stuff that is your visceral self in a position that it has to get involved in the game. It has to. And, you know, we'll, we'll get into that. Um, in terms of... Uh, some of the values of Cry Havoc as an organization that is something that we really try to pour into all of our classes, including this one, is one, the idea of the trying, of articulate artists with a well-articulated vision. 
a well-articulated understanding of their work. That there really is a value to being able to talk in a productive way about your work. And that does a lot of things. One, it lets you really understand the work that you're doing. If you can articulate, this is what I am trying to learn as I am doing this scene. This is what I learned from doing this scene. And are able to talk in thoughtful ways about things. It's going to make the things that you've learned something that you can use because you've named it. And that's one of the things that you know, we're, we're definitely going to be doing as we work on things. We'll be talking about really trying to articulate what did I learn about my relationship to the scene by this run of the play that I just did. And also, it's important to be able to be articulate because as an actor, you're a collaborator. And you want to be able to advocate for yourself in the rehearsal room. You know, you want to be able to, again, you're the one who knows how to play your instrument. You're the one who knows how to play Kristen. And that idea that it's not, hopefully, you know, directors are interested in getting involved in, you know, figuring out what's going to be most helpful for you as an actor. That's not always the case. And even when it is the case, you're still the one who's responsible for knowing how your instrument works. And so for that ability to really be able to say to a director, you know what, I can save us a ton of time, but I need a run where I can do this. There's not a director in the world who's going to say, if you're able to say, I need to have a run where I can do this, that's not going to give you the space to do it. If you're going around rehearsal, like, I don't know, this isn't working, I just, I just need to try some things. You're not going to get what you need from a, from a rehearsal. But that idea of, as a director, if an actor walks up to me and says, look, I've, I've, been, I've, I've been to this rodeo before, I've done this, and this is what I need to figure out this scene, you get out of that person's way. And that just makes you a much more um, valuable collaborator. And it also, I think, makes you a much happier collaborator because you're able to get the things that you need in a scene rather than you know, wandering around not, not having those things that you need. Um, also, the goal-oriented rehearsing, which we're going to get really deep into, is that idea of the... Um, it's a way of rehearsing that makes every single run a meaningful, measurable step towards a performance. We'll talk about what that means. And one of the things that we do is, uh, you know, that it's cry havoc's raw, provocative, humane theater. And raw because it gets into, you know, deeply felt things. Provocative because, you know, why do something that doesn't make people engage in it. You know, it's not necessarily provocative like dirty, but that idea of this is going to be something that has a point of view. Art should have a point of view. And not just the point of view of the play, but the point of view of the actor playing this character. Um, that's what makes an audience lean in, is that there is something happening that I need to engage in. It's not a story that's just happening, but it's things are happening. I am being provoked to action, provoked to thought by what is happening because there are people up there doing something that demands that. Um, and humane, I think, is really important. That idea, and it's a lot of what we're going to be working on in here, is to really give every single character the dignity of their humanity. To not treat a character like a character but to find the ways to let them be a person, behave like a person, to make your life up on stage as analogous as possible to the life of this person that is going on on stage. That again, setting up circumstances and traps for yourself that makes you engage the scene as a person rather than as a character. 
to let your characters be human. Now, the ways that we're going to be working in this class, the one thing that I'm going to ask is, there's going to be stuff that we're going to do in here, but, um, I, I mean, my experience has been teaching this class um, as many times as I've taught it, is what ends up happening is that there's a group of the class that is like, okay, this is how I want to work from now on. There's another group, hopefully pretty much everyone else, who says, okay, this general approach is not something that I want to bring to everything, but it's really useful to me when I'm encountering these kinds of challenges. I'm not sure we've ever had anybody who's just been like, fuck this shit, I'm going home. Um, <laughs> but the thing that I just would I'm really... Not in school. <laughs> <laughs> not in school. Not in school. Um, but... Uh, but the thing that, that, that I just really would ask, and I, th I think you guys will, I think, be glad you did, is just for the eight weeks that we're working on in here, the way that we're working, work this way. See what you learn from it. And you'll either learn a huge amount of things from it. Most of the things that we're working are not going to be about, you know, so throw away everything else you know. It's about augmenting the things that you know. It's about providing a base upon which you can really build, you know, your best work out of the tools that you already have, is what we're talking about. So any questions about, because that's sort of, again, the broad overview of the kinds of things that we're going to be doing in the class. I'm going to dig deeper. All right. Um, one of the things that really is going to be one of the very fundamental cornerstones that we're going to be talking about in here is that idea of believing in your character. And what I mean by that is that it's not enough to just understand why your character does something. You need to believe in their reasons for doing it. You want to find the way that it's not just, oh yeah, well I guess if I was that kind of person, I guess maybe I might do something like that. I have no idea how you play that truthfully. Because you, you understand the world in the way that you understand the world. That's the way the world works. And for you to then say, well, but if it worked a different way, this, I don't know how you can truthfully bring everything that you have to bear to bring to bear for your character. And again, so it's that idea of it's not enough to understand your character. You've got to find a way to believe in what they do to believe it's the right thing. And that's actually something that is, uh, you know, in Cry Havoc's mission statement. It's the one thing. We have people that's part of this company um, that come from all sorts of different training backgrounds. But the one thing that really brings everyone together and it's the thing that's it, the one artistic thing that's in the mission statement of this company is the idea that um, we approach all plays as the struggle between people trying desperately to do what they believe is right. Struggling desperately to do what they believe is right. But that idea of, it's, you know, it's also says that the cry havoc does not believe in evil. And I think that it's that idea that is really underlying everything else that we're going to do, which is to find the way, it's, it's the thing that people say, don't judge your character. I reject that. I say judge your character and judge them to be good. This is a good person that I am playing. Why do they do these things? What would have to be true that maybe I don't know from the text, but what would have to be true that would make this the right thing to do? Because you say, would you kill somebody? No, I wouldn't. But are there circumstances under which you would? I would posit if you would say there are no circumstances under which I would kill someone, you are not a moral person. 
because there are things that are worth killing over. There are. But that idea, and this is, I think, a, a fairly um, uh, provocative thing to say, except I have found that it really is the thing that gets to the most visceral, thrilling performances, is that your characters should share your moral understanding of the world. It's the same thing as my eyes are brown. That's something I can't change about myself. That's something that is fundamentally true about myself. And it is true that the things that you believe to be right and wrong are something that is so fundamentally true about yourself that to pretend that you don't think they are true sets off alarm bells inside you that makes you not be truthful in the work that you're doing. And so the trick is figuring out the way to understand your character such that their, their behavior fits within more, your moral constellation. That idea, and it's a Stella Adler thing, but that the question is not what would I do in the situation that the character is in, but what would the situation have to be for me to do what the character does? Because again, there are things that we might not know about Medea that if you were to put yourself in that situation, you would say, I would kill my children too. If this is what was going on, I would kill my children too. And part of that is about, um, is, is about being the hero of your own play, no matter who you're playing. There's actually a great story when they're doing Streetcar Named Desire for the first time. That is, Streetcar Named Desire, all this stuff, and then in the very end, there's this doctor who comes in to take Blanche away. And they did an interview with the, with the actor who played the doctor originally. It was a, an old actor studio guy. And they said, so tell us what the play's about. He said, well, it's a play about this doctor. <laughs> but is that idea from the point of view of your character that is what it's about. When you're in the room, it's about the thing that you're there to do. And that way of figuring out that just because the play focuses on this part of, this part of the circumstances that are happening in the play doesn't mean everything else that's happening in your life isn't happening. Um, <coughs> excuse me. And I don't, how many of you guys have seen the movie um, The Pursuit of Happiness with uh, uh, Will Smith? Yeah, which Will Smith is very good in that movie, I think. And um, it's, for those of you who don't know, it's, it's a true story um, about this guy who, um, uh, who was homeless. And the, not giving, I'm going to give away the end of the movie, but it's the whole point of the movie. I don't know if you go, but ended up like becoming, you know, a millionaire and in business and all this stuff. But it's this movie about in his life, this period of time when he was homeless and he was living with his son on the street. And the only thing he has to his name is this business suit that he keeps as this whole thing. He keeps it pristine so that he can be going on these business meetings. But he's got nothing else and there's these awful scenes of him and his son sleeping like in a bathroom in a train station and him sleeping with his foot pressed against the door so no one can walk in on them. And it's just he's trying to find some life for his son. And they end up finding this shelter where he feels safe, where he feels safe, that, that he and his son are safe. But part of it is they have very strict rules, including they lock the doors at 5 o'clock. 
And if you're not there and inside by 5 o'clock in time for dinner, you don't get in for that night. And so there's this whole scene where he's got his son is waiting with this person and he's going on this interview and he's in his business suit and he's waiting and the interview's waiting and the guy's not calling him and he's waiting and he's waiting and he's waiting. Finally he gets in and it's like 4.30 and he blows through the interview. He says he's got to go, runs out, is racing, sees the bus is pulled up to the stop, runs up to the bus, there's this whole line of people, he cuts in front of the guy, because now it's 20 minutes to 5, he and his son are going to have to sleep on the street if he can't pick up his son and get him there by 5 o'clock, and he cuts in front of a guy in the line, and the guy says, hey, what are you doing? He goes, back the fuck off, man, and gets on the, gets on the bus. Now, we're like, yeah, man, back the fuck off. This guy's getting his son... <laughs> To the homeless shelter. Now, from the point of view of the guy in the line, this guy in a business suit cut in front of him in line and told him to, 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 to get the fuck out of his way. Now, if this was a movie about the guy waiting in line, and he has this two-line exchange, as often happens in a movie, with the asshole who keeps him from getting to his date because he cuts in front of him in line on the bus, the way Will Smith played that scene would have been perfectly right on the nose for playing the asshole who cuts in front of the guy in the romantic comedy and keeps him from getting on the bus. There's no reason if you're cast as the asshole who cuts off the romantic comedy lead on the way onto the bus that you can't be playing getting my son to the homeless shelter. Nobody knows. Nobody's going to know. Because they don't know that part of your life. But that idea of, I think a lot of actors would be tempted to play, asshole, cutting in front of a guy. But nobody goes through their life to be an asshole. No one. No one goes through their life to do the wrong thing. People go through their life because they think it's the right thing. Sometimes it's because the way the world has treated them, they think they are entitled to whatever it is they think they're entitled to, but there's a reason they think they're entitled to it. And if you ask them about it, they could tell you all about it. And they would believe that they were right about it. You know, and it's that idea of figuring out, again, what would the situation have to be for you to do what your character does. You're the guy who cuts in front of the guy on the way onto, onto the bus. What would the situation have to be for you to do that in real life and play that? Play that because it will always be more truthful than pretending to believe in the reason that some asshole would cut someone off on the bus. Because you know what there is? There is no such thing as someone who views themselves as an asshole who cuts somebody off on the bus. There is no person in the world who views them that way. And that's when you get back to that idea of the, of, of, of the humane approach to, you, to your character. To treat them, give them, give every character the dignity of their humanity, let them experience the world and experience their self-identity the way a person experiences their self-identity. Because that's going to allow you to engage it in a more truthful way. So, circumstances. Now we're getting a little bit more into nitty-gritty about what all of this means. Um, you know, circumstances, there's almost nothing that we're going to be talking about today that's something that any people have never heard of before. It's sometimes, I like to think, a potentially more accessible way to think about some of the things that, you know, you've thought about before in terms of playing characters. Circumstances are one of them. And the 
you know, it's what is the situation that my character is in? And there are different kinds of circumstances. There are given circumstances and there are created circumstances. Given circumstances are things that it tells us in the script, facts that we know in the script, um, and there are also things that we might find from our research. The play takes place in 1930s in Dublin. Well, we can read about what was happening in the 1930s in Dublin. Those would become given circumstances because it's, okay, that's facts. That's stuff that my character is dealing with. And then there's created circumstances, you know, which is, again, the stuff that is not facts that we know. You know, so, for instance, if your character in a play says to someone, hey Jenny, it's good to meet you. Um, you know, I, we, I, it's so weird that we both come from Massachusetts. I lived there until I was 18 when I came to New York for college. What do we know about my character based on that line? Mm-hmm. Actually, what we know from that line is I just told Jenny I'm from Massachusetts. <laughs> I'm 18, and I'm you know, and I said I went to school. So there's even the things that your character says is true. A lot of it might be true. All of it might be true. But it's that idea of realizing that you are not necessarily tethered to exactly what your character lays out in the text. You know, it's actually something, one of my friends, we were having a conversation about this a while ago, and somebody, uh, somebody said, you know, the first thing I like to do when I'm looking at a text is go through and see where my character is lying. And then somebody else said, actually, I like to go through and see if I can see where they're telling the truth. Because if you think about it in your life, how often are you telling the unvarnished truth? The answer is almost never. Almost never are you telling the total unvarnished truth. That doesn't mean you're just going around lying to people all the time, but there is something that you're framing truths in ways. I actually had a long conversation, not a long conversation, but important conversation with somebody the other day. Uh, I mean, just earlier, right before we started this thing about an email that we needed to send to people, and it was like, we want to tell the truth, but we want to tell it in a way that's going to get them thinking about the problem we're telling them about in a useful way rather than an unuseful way. So how do we frame the problem? And it's that idea of embracing the idea that when the truth of your character is actually something more complicated than what it is on the surface, what that forces you to do is to really engage the language is not just to report on what your character says, but if you've got an interesting and compelling backstory that does not exactly match what your character says in the text, it means that when you've got something to do with the language other than just say it. The same way that, you know, whenever you're talking, you know, you're having a fight with your girlfriend or whatever, and it's just like, this is the way I am saying this in hopes that it will get me what I want. You know, it's because that's what we do as people. Again, it's about letting your characters be a person rather than a character that you are reporting. Um, and I, it's, it's just sort of that thing to embrace the idea that last year, the average play on Broadway ran 132 minutes. If your character is 25 years old, they have lived 13,140,000 minutes. 
Which means, even if your character is on stage for the entire length of the play, the playwright has written 0.000089% of your character's life. Granted, it's the 0.000089% that's worth writing a play about. I mean, it's an important 0.00089%. But there's still another 99.99911% of your character's life that is yours to do with whatever you need to do with it in order to make that 0.00089% of your character's life as viscerally, critically important to you as it possibly can be. So there is not a moment of that two hours of your character's life that the playwright has deemed to be important enough to invite people to come and watch that isn't ragingly, critically important to you. And the way that you understand your character. And along those lines, this gets into I've some pictures. Um, uh, you know, this gets into you know script analysis to some degree, and this way of thinking about script analysis and actor that there's different ways of thinking about a story. One is this is your story. It begins and then stuff happens and it ends. I mean that's true. Now if you want to get a little bit more you know sophisticated, you've got rising action and a climax, and then falling action. That's something I bet in a lot of your scene study, you know, in your, I mean, in your script analysis classes and things like that, it's theater history class. You might have talked about that. That's a thing. Now, you want to get even more, um, uh, you know, sophisticated. You actually have a series of rising action, minor climaxes, falling action that rises again until you meet the ultimate climax, and then you've got your denouement at the end. Now, all of those things are very, I suppose, useful ways of looking at a play as a text if you're talking about analyzing it as a text. I have no idea how you play that. I have no idea how you play that. And what I would propose is the helpful way of thinking about a play from an actor's point of view is this. And what is this? This is Hamlet. You're playing Hamlet. This is you. This is you and your character's life and trajectory. And what happens? Where is the play? The play is right here at this moment when Hamlet and Ophelia and uh, all and Beatrice and Benedict and Gertrude and Claudius and all of these people. It's the moment where all of their lives collide. That's what you want the play to be. Not that... I exist in these two hours only to exist in these two hours. But I have a whole life that's happened before. I have a whole life I'm trying to make happen. And it's that idea of being in the moment. What is the moment? I think one of the great fallacies I see all the time, because you're not going to find anyone, believe me, you'll learn this over the next eight weeks, you're not going to find anyone who's a bigger advocate of being in the moment than I am. But one of the things that I think happens a lot of times is that in being in the moment, what it becomes is it's, it is the only moment that has ever existed, which is simply not what happens in a moment. The moment is the meeting place between what has happened to you in your life, your experience, and the life you're trying to create moving forward. That's what a moment is. And you need to know both of those things. You need to know where you've been and where you're trying to go because that's what defines a moment. And what defines a moment on stage in a scene is me being where I've been, trying to go someplace, you being where you've been, trying to go someplace that hopefully both of us cannot get to. 
and having to do battle over which one of us get to go to that place that we're trying to go. That's what a scene is. That's what's exciting. And it's that idea about it is not your job in the scene to play both sides of the conflict. It's your job in the scene to show up to fucking win. Show up to win. Make them beat you if they're going to win in a scene. And that's one of the things we're going to be talking about. Now, how do you do that? What do you do about trying to... Well, one of the things I think that's really useful, because a lot of times, one of the things that, that, that I think people say, and I would really like very much to avoid saying in here, is like, well, my character's the kind of person who... So I'm not sure what that is, because actually, seriously, if I were to say, what kind of person are you? <laughs> Like, could you really put words to it? And if you could, do you think you could put accurate words to it? Probably not. Probably not. And yet that's the way we want to talk to our character, talk about our characters. You say, well, my character seems like the kind of person. Well, I don't know how a character seems like anything, and certainly like a kind of person, because frankly, if it's a play, if we're doing the point oh 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 eight nine percent of the character's life, presumably it is at an incredibly high-stakes moment of their life. And frankly, I think as an actor, every good play is taking place at a high-stakes moment in people's life. So even if it is not a well-written play, I think you're always better off playing it as though it is. This is a very well-written play. This must be a very high-stakes moment in this person's life. I've got to figure out why. They're not giving me a lot of clues in the text. But I'll figure out why, because this is clearly a well-written play. There's got, there's got to be something going on. But that idea of you're seeing people at an extraordinary moment. You're presumably seeing them at a time where they're not behaving as they normally do. So you can't tell the kind of person they are based on what they do in the scene. What you can tell about them is what they do. And that's why the thing that I think is really helpful and part of what we're talking about, about the way you can use your thought process to get away from over-intellectualizing, that over-intellectualizing gets into, well, they're the kind of person, they're the kind of person who this, they're this sort of person. What you can do, though, is come up with a constellation of facts. Facts are your friends. Facts give you something to respond against. Facts give you something to throw in someone's face. Facts give you something to do something about rather than something to behave like. And it's actually with Judge Judy, who uh, is, I'll be honest, Judge Judy is my guilty watching. Like I, I, I TiVo, uh, uh, DVR Judge Judy. So like when I'm getting dressed in the morning, I watch Judge Judy. Uh, it's, it's, it's human. But, um, but the... It's human. Um, but one of the things that she said, which I love, is that, is, that, is that people will say, well, he came in and he threatened me. He said, don't tell me he threatened you. Tell me what he said. I'll decide if he threatened you. And that, that's the thing, that when you come in and you say, and you say, you know, well, well, what happened? Well, I'm coming in and he's being threatening to me. Or I came over here and he, you know, and he threatened me. He intimidated me. He did whatever. Okay, what did he actually do? What did he actually do? And hopefully what you can do is come up with something he actually did that rather than makes you, oh, he intimidated me, so I must find a way to push back. What you can do if it's a fact and you can find the thing that he did that makes you want to push back because fuck him, you don't have to do a lot of acting then. You don't have to do a lot of acting if you can find a thing, again, that actually makes you, you, the person you spent 20, 25 years becoming, 
if you can find the thing that makes you respond in that visceral way. And a lot of what we're going to be working on is that idea of, because one of the tricks is, it is never, ever, 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 ever once the thing you think it's going to be. Ever. And it's that idea of finding the way, and we're going to work on all sorts of tools as we're in here, of digging into a scene that forces you to engage it from different angles that forces you to engage it in different ways than you would necessarily expect to engage it. And then, what you will find is that you will learn things from every different way of engaging it, and there will be something, and it will almost definitely be something where you're like, this is a stupid thing to work on, where you're gonna go like, this makes the whole scene make total sense to me. This opens up the scene to me, Boom, in a totally unexpected way. Because, again, the things that really viscerally move you about what's going on in the world are things that you have not processed up here. And it's about using up here, again, to put yourself in a position that forces your subconscious to serve up stuff that really affects you. And usually it's going to be facts. Usually I will guarantee you, as you're finding really great things, what you will find out is you're like... it. When he said that thing, I had this picture of his tennis shoes, and one of them was untied, and I wanted to kill him. All right, don't know where that came from. Don't need to figure it out. All we need to know is when he's talking about his shoes, those are the shoes he's talking about, because that does something to you, and it will do that to you every single time. It'll do that to you every single time. But a big part of the trick of what we're going to be working on here is ways of approaching a scene that leaves open huge possibility for what the scene could be. As a matter of fact, a big part of the emphasis of what we're, you know, the kind of work that, that we're going to be, be doing, we'll keep dealing with what that's going to be, is to put you in a position where the scene, if you work on the thing that you are working on, cannot possibly be right. It cannot possibly be right. And what that does is it frees you up to see the number of ways in which things actually really can be right. There is, and we'll get into a little while, but there's a friend of ours who every single scene he does, every single play he does, he tries every scene once in the process where he's trying to get the other person to run for president. No matter what the scene is. But what he says is, there's something about that, okay, I'm playing, there, I am not actually trying to get Blanche to run for president. But there's something that's so freeing about the fact that this cannot be right. That lets all sorts of stuff that feels so, so right show up. Because it's all the stuff that you censor. All the stuff that you, that, that you censor. It's like, this feels so right, but it can't possibly be. That by trying things that feel like, the whole scene is not about that. The whole scene isn't about that. But trying, let's let the whole scene be about that. Let's see what happens if the whole scene is about getting her to run for president. Let's see what happens if the whole scene is only about the fact that I'm trying to get you to ally with me against her. That's not what the whole scene's about, but let's try it once where that's all that's going on for me. And we'll find out all sorts of things that I learn about the scene by really giving myself over to that idea. One, I will find out an awful lot of things about, hey, when I'm trying to get you to ally with me against Jenny, this is really useful. But also, all sorts of other things will show up because the part of your brain that tries to censor away things that are not quote-unquote right lets all sorts of useful stuff in. 
So it's a really fun way of working, but it's something that opens you up by putting yourself in a position where, it's, it's the, the Will uh, uh, Harper always says, it's strong and wrong. Do something strong and wrong. But it's really amazing how much you find that's right when you give yourself over to that idea. And so that's a lot of what we're going to, to, to be working on. You know, so it's that, that facts, again, give us fuel and raw material with which to behave naturally. It gives us things to respond against. It gives us things to use rather than things that we think we're supposed to act like in the scene. It gives us something to do. Um, and that you never know where the heart of your performance is going to go. But something that I just, I also think is really important, it's always, and we will say this a million times before we stop seeing each other, but it's something that I, I will say to you because I am actually primarily these days a playwright. You will not break the script by trying something that is not what you think the playwright wanted you to try. You will not break the script. Hamlet is still dying at the end of the play. That's still going to happen. Hamlet is still going to ask to be or not to be. Hamlet is still going to encounter Yorick skull in the, you know, and, and consider the thoughts about Yorick that Yorick that, that Hamlet considers. All of that is going to happen no matter what you play. But if you can find the thing that you have to play that makes it important to you to talk about Yorick, what the audience will understand is exactly what's written, but that it's really important and truthful. That's what they'll understand. Um, you know, it goes back a little to the, to the uh, pursuit of happiness thing. You know, that's the kind of thing that we're talking about is... If this was a, if the pursuit of happiness thing with Will Smith cutting on the bus is a movie about the guy waiting in line, and that was all we saw of Will Smith, we all we would know was that he's an asshole, cut in front of him on the bus. But that it wouldn't break the play if his character was trying to get to the homeless shelter. Wouldn't break the film. It would make the film better because it would make that moment a real, human, genuine moment. Um, other things that I think are really useful in terms of like a similar thought about that is facts, what are you responding against? And again, this is stuff we'll all get into and working practically as we start working on our scenes. But one of the critical questions I think always is to ask, what are you trying to express in the scene? And hopefully, it goes back to what we were saying before, but hopefully it is very, very rarely the exact words that you have to say. Because again, it forces you to use the words to do what you want to do. And it's actually the thing that uh, I had a teacher in grad school always talk about, you know, that the words come last. And it's that idea of certainly, you read the play, okay, I understand what's going on, but then you find what you can really believe in about the play, and then you use the words to do that thing you really believe in. You know, and that's the thing, again, I'll say as a playwright, what I think about when I'm writing it is this is going to be a bar fight between these two people. Every scene is a bar fight between these two people. And what I've done is I've put a bottle here. And this person's going to grab that bottle and use it to attack the other person. Now, are they going to club them over the head with it? Are they going to smash it on the bar and, and, and threaten them with the sharp edge of it? Are they going to smash it on the bar and then cut their face? I don't know what they're going to do with the bottle. As a playwright, I'm really interested to know it, but I do know they're going to grab that bottle. That's the line. That's what they've got to work with. But how they use it, 
is going to be very exciting to see in the scene. It's going to define you know, what it is. But that's also something that if you can figure out what I'm trying to say, because there are ways, if the line is, I love you, I could mean I love you. I could mean I hate you. You can say I love you in a way that means I hate you. I could mean I would like you to tell me that you love me. I could mean I can't believe you haven't said I love you to me before. I could be saying I really love her. There's any number of things that I could be saying with the lines I love you. And if that is something that is eminently repeatable, and one of the things that will, as we're getting up and working, one of the questions that I will always ask you after a scene is, are there any things that you said this time that meant something different to you than it has ever meant before? Because it's that idea of sometimes, and you can say, when I said this thing, I was talking about what she did to my brother. That's what I was trying to remind her of what she did to my brother. I'd never thought of it that way. But do you know what? That is totally repeatable. You can do that every time where you can say, that's the message I'm trying to get across at that line. And if you find it's something very potent for you, that potency will show up for you every time you try to make the line mean that thing. Anyway, we'll get more in, uh, into detail about that, but that's an idea as we get up and start working. We'll start seeing how that works. Um, and also is that, is that idea of there's a difference between saying in terms of locking in a performance, you know, once, because at some point you do have to lock in a performance, but it's so much more playable and so much more fun if the thing you've locked in is every time I say it, I'm going to, this line is going to be about what you did to my mom, rather than I'm going to hit the third word of this line every time. This one is something I can really do every night, can have a little bit of variation to it every night, but still be the same moment. Whereas, actually, if what you say is, this is the line where I yell and I hit this word, that's going to be really different every night. Because even if you yell and you hit that word, if you're not feeling it, or if you're feeling it differently, it's going to be yelled and you're going to hit that third word, but it's going to mean a totally different thing every night. Whereas, if I know this is about calling you to account for what you did to my mom, it might be louder one night, it might be softer one night, but it's always going to be the same moment, essentially. Um, people want to take a five minute break go to the rest of it. take five minutes pick up <laughs> we hope that you enjoyed this first part of the performance only you can give join us next episode for the second part of the discussion including the importance of expectation strategies for creating a dynamic and useful character history and the ways in which embracing the complexity of a character's life serves to simplify and focus an actor's job on stage. If you are interested in being part of the next session of our scene study class and finding the performance that only you can give, email Will Clark at classes at cryhavocompany.org. Mention that you heard about the class on the podcast for a special first-time student discount. And if you are interested in learning more about other classes Cry Havoc offers, please visit www.cryhavoccompany.org classes. So for myself, Kit, Jenny, and everyone at the Cry Havoc Company, thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you soon. You can learn more about the Cry Havoc Company at cryhavoccompany.org. Questions or comments can be sent to podcasts at cryhavoccompany.org. All music from this show came from the Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Thanks for listening and please subscribe.